The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door We still haven't gotten to the end of chapter five at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know enough about Grant as a person to speak in mm. regards to his characterization in the novel. Whether we're talking about the way he chooses to characterize himself, or perhaps more accurately, the way Alex chooses to characterize him through his own self-reflection. The subject of President Grant does come up in uh, The West Wing a couple of times, but I honestly don't know enough about him and his history or even how he is necessarily portrayed in works of fiction to Mm. comment on if this is an accurate historical reflection or if this is just the version of Grant that Thomas is dealing with. But... It all sounds like things that one could associate with Grant and also shows a shocking amount of self-reflection and honesty that we can appreciate when we're talking about, you know, the work that someone has to put in in order to be better, a better version of themselves, so to speak. We like Grant better because of his ability to be self-effacing and also the fact that unlike Custer, he has respect for Thomas that is clear and unmitigated by his race. But he also doesn't blow smoke up Thomas's ass, uh, even if in the end his loyalty to his director is unwavering. Mm. So through the briefest of research stints, Grant's characterization as someone whose judgment of a man's qualities would be unaffected by race is cohesive with what I've read. Mm. even if we still run into the trend of depicting historical figures in fiction as what we'd hope would prove to be the best possible version of themselves based on their legacy. Mm. You know, their real selves might still very much be tarnished by the general trends and attitudes of the time period. Mm. Mm -hmm. While his predecessor, Andrew Johnson, was a Southern Democrat that handled Reconstruction in the South with a light hand that meant that black individuals were one criminal offense away from what could be described as virtual enslavement. Grant used his first term to unambiguously protect the rights of freed African Americans by several things, including signing the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed universal male suffrage irrespective of race. Could have made that non-gendered their Ulysses, but you know, it's a step forward i suppose and to be fair for uh, one thing i read said that he was also a proponent of advancing uh female voter rights as well but again this was a very brief uh research stint so 
I shan't say this with more authority than this warrants. Anyway, he also had like his Congress passed four force acts between 1871 and 1875 that targeted illegal voter suppression in the South, which, among other steps forward for equality, put a stranglehold on the public operations of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. It should be noted that his second term saw less focus on Reconstruction when the financial panic of 1873 became a new priority. The man was not a tireless crusader of racial equality, but he committed time and resources towards ensuring progress happened. I saw a claim that he appointed African Americans and Jewish Americans to prominent federal offices, and while I could find examples of Jewish Americans assigned to federal office, such as Edward S. Solomon, who was appointed territorial governor of Washington, which was incidentally the first time an American Jewish man occupied a governor's seat. I couldn't find a specific citation or example of an African-American individual appointed to a position in federal office. But at the same time, the fictional version of Grant we see here gels with the historical figure on record, and I can believe that he would place trust in someone like Thomas Arlington. Yeah. Because I was curious, I did a little deeper digging to see if there were more interesting details regarding Grant's legacy. As it turns out, in the 1862 campaign, a man named Henry Wilson was elected to be vice president alongside Grant, as this was back in the days when presidents and vice presidents ran separately. Wilson was a senator from my neck of the woods, Massachusetts, and was a tireless campaigner himself for workers' rights, black rights, and abolition, he himself being a radical Republican back when they were the most progressive politicians. Unfortunately, he also had a stroke in 1873, which more or less stymied his further involvement in politics. On top of that, the 1872 election was also the one where a woman first tried running for president, Victoria Woodhull. I will not get in deep with Woodhull, save for the fact that she obviously was a huge proponent for women's suffrage and had nominated Frederick Douglass as a running mate, even though Douglas never acknowledged his nomination. On top of that, she was an advocate for free love, which doesn't mean what you think it means thanks to the hippie movement. She was basically asking for the right for women to marry, divorce, and bear children without social restriction or government interference. There's more to it than that, but if you're curious, I highly recommend looking into her, especially if you're as big fans as I am, of Let Them Go. Digression ended, on with our show. Though the one thing I always hear about Grant is about his constant love of drink, and I don't mm. necessarily know how that played out during actual history, during his terms in office. The only thing that I do remember is a joke at one point where the discussion of Grant comes up as a potential presidential appointee, where someone makes the argument of the man's a drunk and then someone else responds, then please send me a case of whatever it is that he's drinking. As it turns out, the place that I heard that quote from, once more the West Wing, was playing a little fast and loose with the language, framed in a more modern way of speaking. The actual quote came from the New York Herald, 
When Grant's removal from the general staff was requested of Abraham Lincoln back in 1863, Lincoln was said to respond, Can you tell me where he gets his whiskey? Because if I can only find out, I will send a barrel of this wonderful whiskey to every general in the army. <laughs> you know, as in, you know, that that's the joke that we we make in terms of like other addictive substances like drugs these days and everything like that. The man's stoned. Well, then, can I have some of that, please? <laughs> yeah. it, it's certainly, I like I said, you sort of see a lot of this and you wonder if that's something that was maybe set up to de-emphasize some of his other things. I don't know. It also, like, maybe he was. And if that's the case, if this is by 19th century standards, then that might have been quite a bit. But uh, it's difficult to say. Granted. You did that on purpose. Um <laughs> did what on purpose? Of course I did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> we have to it, get our jokes where we can find them, Greg. We have yeah, to. It's <laughs> true. It's true. The little bit of research that you did is fascinating. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, that you did it because I didn't think to do it myself. I was focused so much on other things at that point. Not to mention that the truth of what the historical politicians were like is far beyond our remit. Not to say that I'm not interested in questions like if Lincoln was actually as friendly to black rights as he said, or if he pushed for what he did simply for political reasons. Alex and Sharon have a whole show where they pick apart and discuss their issues with Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, which is a fictional depiction of everything that Lincoln went through in order to try and push that through uh, while the while the Civil War was still coming to an end and everything like that. Everyone always associates Lincoln in particular as being a tireless protector of civil rights and everything like that, and we may never actually know the real truth of it. We only know what other people said about it, what Lincoln himself may have said about it, but we don't have anyone that personally knew the man and can speak to it honestly on the record and everything like that. The same is definitely true of Grant himself, but for the purposes of this story, I very much appreciate, as already stated, the depiction of Grant as someone that would have brought Thomas in as a major architect of a better world he also saw as necessary, not simply a rebuilding of what was due to the tragedy of the Wendigo and everything. Mm. It's a very simultaneously vulnerable, but also stern in an authoritative way performance. I think it's puts forward his merits and his faults in equal measure mm. and the fact that he's doing this while he's clearly like not long for this world feels like taking apart the idea that this is a historical figure as a scene it feels like you're getting more insight than you necessarily came into the room with but the person doesn't really mind sharing or confessing all of this mm. and it does make you respect this version of Grant, I think. 
It also makes me wonder a little bit more about the relationship between the two of them and how they became as close as they did, because Thomas also, for a very brief moment, seems to want to protect Grant's own self-image. And mm. Grant goes Grant goes on to steamroll him, is like, no, here's the bitter truth about that. So mm. it's clear that there is definite respect on both sides of it, and that it's not just that Thomas is grateful for the opportunities that Grant has provided. Do you think that there's an element in Grant's head? The, the thing he's recording is endorsing Arlington and the revelation that this new edition of the handbook will make plain that he's aware that Thomas is putting far more on the line of himself mm. than, you know, he's in this position of power. Like he owes it to this person that is a close acquaintance and like someone he respects. Thomas shows respect to, to Grant by sort of saying like, you know, we can take this out if you want. It's just like, no, leave it in. I do feel like that is cohesive with what we're seeing. Mm. Hmm. Is that a, a, a patented Greg? Huh? Yeah, that 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 would be that would be the definitely a place where I would put in uh, the sound from Malcolm Reynolds. There, there could be more conversation there, but God, uh, we've got pages and pages of notes. Let's try and keep going here. Chapter mm -hmm. six. Chapter six. Hey, we got past the first one. Yeah, we finally got there. This is our next opportunity to pick up where we left off and learn more about Sarah. What she is like when she is alone with Thomas. What she is like when she is not with him at all, thanks to the conversation she has with Butler, as well as her extended dialogue with General Curtis. This is also her opportunity to show herself as a leader and planner in trying to sway stubborn Thomas in negotiating with General Curtis, and also into taking the opportunity to learn more about Butler as a person, how his mind works, the nature of his loyalty, and what his relationship with Annie says about him. The level of complexity involved of all of these actions shows us why she isn't merely, quote-unquote, Thomas's better half, but in fact, the deputy director of the NIA in her own right. Just because she is the diplomat and emphasizes empathy and subtlety, she has a core of steel that we get to see in regards to what she asks from Curtis and why she asks it when she continues the conversation with Frank in the carriage later. One of the many successes with how Sarah is written is that she comes across like someone who has lived with and learned from her significant other for a long time. She demonstrates many of the aptitudes and talents for leading people and assessing problems, but she doesn't read as just a second Thomas. She demonstrates her own approaches and attitudes, and she has a capacity and a readiness to reach out and connect with people that Thomas simply can't manage. Mm. As such, what we're seeing is someone who's very strong in her own right, but is someone who has also taken on some of the better qualities of her partner while instilling in him and encouraging some of her own better qualities. Mm. They are synchronous, yet hold on to their individuality. And 
that's why Sarah emerges as her own autonomous protagonist rather than stepping onto stage as the heretofore mentioned Mrs. Arlington in a way that would diminish her strengths or capabilities. Sorry, I'm just sort of sitting here a little bit, pondering your words and my words and realizing that I have thoughts in my head that I can't necessarily go into now because it involves a lot of other stuff coming down the road. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, in general, I agree with all of that. And sorry. No, there's nothing there. Nothing. Nothing's happening. Nothing's there. Let's just move on to the next thing. I I don't have any follow-up to that. I I was going to say, are you pondering what I'm pondering? (laughs) I think so, Brian. You could throw that line at me, but unfortunately be like, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? And if there was a visual representation of what I'm pondering, then it would just be a thought balloon and there would be nothing in the thought balloon. Or rather, (laughs) there would be a jumble of things in the thought balloon and then an image of me like, taking a big push broom and then sweeping it all to one side because like, can't talk about that right now. Uh, (laughs) There is a fascinating comparison in regards to how both Thomas and Sarah respond to Butler. We got into this a little bit last time, but going further with it, now that we're seeing more of Sarah, Thomas clearly engages with Frank's mind He likes that Frank has more than loyalty and has a good mind and a willingness to speak, but not so much that Thomas feels like Butler is being overly confrontational. Meanwhile, Sarah draws Frank out, learns more about what makes him tick, posits ideas, and then lets him talk. There may be some elements with that in regards to Thomas as well, particularly when the conversation comes up about the origin of his name. As I added in a little bit of an aside last time, that may well have been Thomas testing Frank to some degree, but we see more of that in regards to the topics of choice that Sarah brings to Frank's attention. And she grows to like and trust him based on sympathetic resonance. On top of that, as we get into later in Chapter 8, Sarah clearly thinks of things and cares about things that would never occur to Thomas. I've said over and over that people are pattern-matching machines, and the simple truth is the reason why an outside opinion can be important is that every brain puts different priorities on what patterns are the most important to make, or are just the easiest to make based on that person's experience. Much of what she says and how she says it makes me think that she could do very well as a therapist. Mm, I could say that. I could definitely say that. Yeah, Thomas's interests in Frank are a mixture of utilitarian assessment and logical discourse. Sarah appears to want to get to know what emotionally drives him and how Frank himself assesses and understands his own connections to others and the effect that that has on him. They are both 
evaluating Butler in different ways. And what we appreciate is that neither of them reduce Frank to just another asset. Even Thomas, they are trusting Butler. So this effort to get to know him is a way of not only making sure they've trusted the right man, but also to let him closer in. Yeah. When I think about the conversation specifically in regards to asking about his ability to defend the two of them from outside instigators, and then the revelation of why it is that she's asking this because of a man that quote-unquote went off the reservation in regards to choosing to be disloyal to the RSA thanks to having a different set of beliefs that aren't in line with what this administration is trying to promote and the fact that it was Frank himself that had to bring this rogue agent down. Mm. It's clear that she is trying to understand whether he did it simply out of personal loyalty or loyalty to what the RSA represents and would how does he feel about having to have done it and would he do it again? Because the way that at least part of that conversation is framed when like could you take out two men three men four men it isn't just about learning more about annie although that's a significant portion of it she is not even necessarily thinking about raiders or armed persons from outside she is worried about very specifically bad-faced agents that are ostensibly people that should be on the side of the RSA, whether we're talking about white scarf soldiers or other components of the established order here in Washington, particularly in regards to all of the discussion that there she's having with Curtis eventually with the uh, stuff that is also a component of some of the things that uh, Lawton Sadler is involved with in chapter four regarding the harvesting of poppies and discussions with Curtis about, is it the clan? Is it something else? Basically elements that feel safe enough uh, in regards to taking actions, which would not necessarily seem to be good towards the stability of the government and the society that has reclaimed itself from the Wendigo threat. You'd figure that people that did not feel safe from the outside world would be more concerned with their own safety rather than instigating things that would cause upheaval. So, mm. All of this stuff that we've just been discussing with more and more details as to what is going on and why, even with the historical changes, thanks to the Wendigo, all of this kind of has a feeling of reality to it. The kinds mm. of things that were going on in Antebellum South and possibly even Antebellum North as well. And it's a reflection of that French quote that I love to use over and over again. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Even with the Wendigo, somehow the clan still shows up. It's a very useful phrase, that one. Uh, like 
it really is something that will never go out of fashion. Mm-hmm. This uh, this chapter, this segment, it's an assessment of what the KKK's methods are attempting to accomplish in regards to sowing distrust and unease within reunified communities. If I were to identify a key theme of this text, that becomes increasingly clear the further into Arlington we get. I'd say it's this. The challenges of unifying and the vicious and destructive side of humanity that resists this unification, causing us to question if the struggle is either achievable or even worth it. In a post-Civil War setting, even an alternate history one like this, where the term reconstruction takes on even more meaning in the sense of we are actually trying to reconstruct American civilization. Mm. In face of all of that, the growth of the KKK is, it's not only an appropriate element to acknowledge if you're going to confront this hard-hitting question about ourselves and wider society, but arguably a necessary one. It's horrible, but it's what our heroes have to fight against. Mm. And in a way, this is the new century book where the conflict feels the most grounded in reality up to this point. Mm. So far, personal and social issues have been confronted in and around fantastical scenarios and entities. Here, most of the problems to be overcome and hurdles in our characters' paths have come not from the Wendigo or any other fantastical creature like the Manticore at the beginning, but from people. Mm. The books may start with that assassination from the Manticore, but how many chapters have we gone through now where that particular development has kind of been far from our minds? Yeah, that when you were talking about inciting incidents a little bit ago, the advent of the Manticore was definitely one of them. But mm. on top of all of that, we already know that based on the way chapter two begins, where Frank is three weeks from that event, we are basically getting an insight into the quote-unquote normality of the District of Columbia before that inciting incident is even a part of the discussion. Yes, yes, I know. We're, we're, we're going to talk. Look, I know that we're not talking enough about you, Wendigo, but don't worry. Your time will definitely come. It, it really will. Narrative. Just patience. <laughs> Damn it, the Wendigo. Uh, make it so I, I lose my train of thought. Um, as far as all of these events so far, we have not yet seen the point at which the events in Chapter 1 will become a part of the active narrative of Arlington yet. Mm. That means that everything that we've seen up till now are basically showing more of what Annie was talking about in that first chapter, about how they're just one step away from desperate. Because Mm. even if they have certain parts of the RSA under control and somewhat free of Wendigo, they're still having a problem controlling those communities, not even Mm. bringing new communities in like what happened in secret rooms, but just like maintaining stability in the ones that have ostensibly agreed to work with the RSA. 
Yeah, if Secret Rooms is all about how, like, oh man, it's really difficult to get people to sign on board, Arlington is like, yeah, it's harder to keep them. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and you go, oh, fuck, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the reason why the influence of the West Wing TV show is such a good point of comparison in regards to the novel Arlington, because there are no fantastical creatures in that show. There is just the difficulties involved in governing. And that's Mm -hmm. what's going on here. The fact that there are Wendigo and Manticores is really just sort of almost insult to injury. Like on top of everything else, we have to deal with this. Although to be perfectly honest, the West Wing had some components of that sort of thing as well. Not in terms of fantastical monsters, but definitely in terms of world events that the administration had to respond to that have nothing to do with the internal problems of governing the U.S. It's just in those cases, it's about Iranians trying to develop a nuclear weapon or whatever Russia is doing or whatever China is doing. Stuff like that. Of course, long-term fans of The West Wing would point out that there are plots involving hate groups in that show as well. One of them culminating in an intense storyline and cliffhanger that spans from season one into season two. But the thing about The West Wing that is a mark against it is that it still has rose-colored glasses on from the 90s and the Clinton administration about how problematic these hate groups actually are. Not to mention how dangerous certain existing governmental and municipal entities are. The one time it had anything regarding police violence, it was trying to downplay that an accusation of a policeman breaking a black suspect's leg was actually a lie. That feels very naive in retrospect as the last ten years of the internet and camera phones has revealed just how bad it is. How bad it always was. The West Wing can be very sanitized in the way that it tackles certain issues, even though the world has changed significantly since it was on the air. But once more, I digress. In place of that, we have the ongoing Wendigo threat, and we have... Suddenly, the vice president was eaten by a manticore. Yeah, and isn't it indicative that that's not been the major talking point of the narrative up to this point? Granted, this is like three weeks ago in the past, but when you see that, you think that the biggest takeaway that's going to define the rest of the book is going to be, holy shit, manticores are apparently a thing, Mm -hmm. but it's not and i think that's why so much of the that prologue is not sort of fixated on the manticore it's fixated on the situation and the unease and the tension of just being among a uneasy population the more i think about it the more i love that prologue as a sort of tone setter for the rest of the book because Mm, mm. it establishes what the flavor of this one is in comparison to secret rooms which 
it's the same America, it's the same world and setting that we've seen before, but you're seeing it from a perspective which really puts everything into sharp relief, just how desperate things are. That, that what we talked about last time with Annie's assessment, mm. you're seeing that, yeah, it, it is exactly like what I think it's in chapter six where Thomas is talking about how no, it's in uh, one of the later ones, possibly when he's trying to put out fires in multiple different areas, and it rather than it coming one at a time, it's all at once. That it's always just all at once. I'm not sure exactly what you were referring to, although it could be well some of the interaction that he's specifically having while Tremaine keeps on pestering for an audience. Yes. Because remember, they're trying to work out the whole thing with the housing and various other things, and there's overlapping voices. In the meantime, the phone keeps ringing with them updating. Like, Tremaine says, I'll, I'll wait, or Tremaine says, hey, when are you going to give me that audience? And Thomas is keeping, like saying, no, not right now, click. Um, or eventually be like, phone rings, pick up the receiver, put it back down again, continue mm -hmm. what I was saying a second ago. But there's, there's definitely going to be more of that going into the rest of the book, but that's definitely one of the things that Chapter 8 gets into, is mm -hmm. that there's just too many things that he has to deal with at once. Although, mm -hmm. I think that actually also comes up a little bit, his assertion that there's just too many things going on in that intimate scene with him and Sarah about why it is that he can't finally relax and have some food and, you know, a little bit of the how's your father and everything like that. <laughs> it's the, I will say that the music choice of that scene is sultry, uh, I guess is the <laughs> best way, word to convey that. And I, it, it's definitely one of those moments which feels like it's comforting to see a moment of, them being away from it, even if it's mm -hmm. short-lived, and even if Thomas doesn't really give in to what Sarah is encouraging him to do, which is to just sort of put all of this to the side mm -hmm. and just unwind in a number <laughs> of ways. The winding may be involved in one of them. Anyway, um, but... It's a great it's, scene. I just don't necessarily feel like I have anything to contribute to it. It speaks for itself. It, it really um, does, and I think that it's it's just a good episode in amongst all of the other things mm -hmm. going on. I mean that not in that the entire episode, but more just like that little scene. It just it adds a lot with its presence. Yeah, exactly. That brings us to chapter seven. If Yay. I was talking, yeah, if I was talking last time about how much enjoyment I get out of revisiting chapter two with all of the interaction between Edison and Tesla and Harry and Frank. Now we get to see Calvin Wilson, who was only referenced briefly at the stinger at the end of Secret Rooms, which is actually, that stinger is actually now present in Arlington itself, mm. but, is also, but is also referenced as being one of the final stories in the cartographer's handbook. Now we get to see the full breadth of his personality, as well as the full introduction of someone that was only a 
brief voice up until now, Jeremy Pines. Tavish McTavish is also a great character, but he doesn't carry the same kind of energy as Wilson and Pines do. They are fun for completely different reasons. And even though we are going to see more of one of them than the other in the many books to follow, this chapter not only gives us some great exposition, but is one of the most entertaining chapters in the book, which is fairly important considering the chapter that's going to come after this. What's coming next, but let's enjoy ourselves while we can, Greg. Yeah, it's a buffer against the way our teeth grind hearing about Tremaine and all of the other stuff that's going on, uh, and later discussion down the road with uh, various southern cults that Thomas has on his mind, which is not actually in the chapters we're discussing, so put that to one side. One side. On on top of that, Donald McTavish contributes to this with not being a hilarious personality, but being the straight man during all of this with his deadpan pronouncements. One of the things that I really enjoyed is hearing Donald's voice actor being the guy that was on the uh, Metal Gear Solid School of Movies with you. Ah, uh, yes. I... Oh, yeah, I had not twinged that. Oh, my God, I got to speak <laughs> with Donald. Oh, oh that's De- brilliant. Derek, Derek has a very distinct accent, mm. which I can't mm. necessarily identify. I think it's Scottish or some variant of that. But, yeah, whenever Damn I it, hear... I should have uh, asked him if he wanted to be an interview guest on the thing that I didn't know I would be working on several years later. <laughs> yeah, don't feel bad. Through the window was... Not even a glimmer in your eye at this point. You and I had not met. Uh... <laughs> Greg, like, you're going to have to buy me a few more drinks before we can equate this to something that was produced between the two of us as a result of a glimmer in my eye. <laughs> Give the fanfic people on the Discord something to write about. <laughs> uh, Toby, if people start writing slash fic in regards to you and I... First of all, I'd totally read it, but I think that <laughs> I, I think that that would be like potentially a sign that we've made it, you know, that we're the, that we're the real deal. Uh, <laughs> uh, I it, it is I have a dream, and it's to see myself be the subject matter of Slashfic with my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> but, you can't see this, but I'm raising my eyebrows repeatedly at Greg right now. <laughs> <laughs> So wait, are we doing Mr. Bean here, or are we doing uh, Danny Pudi in uh, Community? I guess it works. I guess it works no matter what what yeah. piece of media we're referencing. Yeah. Pick your preference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I shall uh, step away from this territory and leave it up to you to write it. Um, <laughs> anyway, Donald McTavish, Calvin Wilson, Jerry Pines, are lovely folks. Yeah, getting on to what you were talking about of this is such a lovely thing to have in the middle of 
everything else that we've been dealing with at this point in the story. It's almost as if discussions of the paranormal and dangerous ventures to traverse unknown extra-dimensional territory with a group of likeable and well-meaning people is infinitely more comfortable and enjoyable than being confronted with destructive, self-entitled shitheels that force themselves onto the table of politics when most people want to just get on with the business of living, surviving, and rebuilding. But that would be silly. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like we're going to get an opportunity to experience that firsthand, are we? Cough, cough, cough. No, no. <laughs> and as a side note, it's very refreshing and surreal to have a man named Donald be in a American political situation. And I find them quite likable and charming and a straight man who evens things out. Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway. That that person that I'm referring to no longer exists. They have yeah, been. Yeah, exactly. We're not we're not going to talk about them any no. further because if we talk about him, then he might come back. He'll be like the yes. fucking Candyman. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so, anyway, Calvin Wilson, terrific presence. It's notable that unlike Tremaine in the next chapter, who waltzes in and makes a show of controlling Arlington's own space. Wilson carries a self-possessiveness that stops at encroaching on other people's control. Uh, the text even talks about the narration specifies that he makes himself at home without conquering it for his own needs and wants. He's framed as remarkable, not just for his many accomplishments, but in his readiness to turn straight back around for another six-month trip dedicating a year of his own time for something that could conceivably be accomplished in a number of other ways that would be more expedient. It's what makes us like him, despite him testing Thomas's patience by uh, stop-starting the recordings with his indulgences. We know that Thomas also disapproves of unnecessary drinking, so his uh, insistence that he has a brandy, or mm -hmm. I think it was a brandy, but uh, or scotch, it was a um, scotch, yeah, very yes. specifically. Yeah, and he's not someone driven by flights of fancy, but someone who, underneath all of his many ventures, is motivated by a desire to help people, even if he has to go out of his way to make that happen. And he doesn't sort of make a big show of that. It's just sort of, yes, like that's the right thing to do, and a very matter-of-factly. Then we get to Jeremy, and Jeremy is that character who embodies part of the audience's own feelings, mm. a barely contained, or indeed not contained at all, excitement to see and find out about the otherworldly creatures and phenomena that are out there. And with the book being Arlington being centred around committing to a political thriller genre, Jeremy is there to represent that part of ourselves that's going... Yes, I am definitely on board with all of this political thriller stuff, but, I mean, come on, guys, there are freaking manticles and purple tigers out there. Don't you want to see those? <laughs> so a dose of sincere enthusiasm is as effective an antidote to the ugly ambitions that we see in those discussed or featured in the chapters either side of those as you could wish for. He's just really great to see. and. Mm -hmm. Donald McTavish is there to be a sweet and much-valued counterbalance to Jeremy. So a couple things that I wanted to bring up in response to 
your thoughts on Calvin and Jeremy. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, I find a certain irony behind the fact that you frame Calvin as being someone that doesn't conquer a space for his own needs and wants, which is a fascinating way to characterize him, considering he's British. Uh, yes, he's the <laughs> he's essentially like, hmm, what if we had that like colonial explorer who you stripped out all of the stamping on every single part of the globe that he conquers and he's actually a decent person Mm -hmm. someone who to get to a book that is far in the future of this series the idea of exploring and not needing to take something but it being simply enough to look at it Mm. is something that is not inherently sort of reprehensible and i think that what you get with calvin wilson is he is very good at just sort of observing and reporting and Mm. that being enough there's a little bit of indiana jones in there i think in just wanting to be able to see these places Mm. and yet at the same at the same time the the whole indiana jones thing is specifically in order to recover artifacts of this culture and we don't necessarily see that in calvin himself the quality of coming into a culture specifically in order to acquire things for whatever reason, whether it's monetary or historical or whatever, that's going to be a characterization and a topic that's going to come up in a much later new century book. But hmm. uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I like wonder the which idea. character comes to mind. Panther <laughs> <laughs> <the> boyfriends. <laughs> Come on, don't I'm spoil a, too much. I'm I'm such a creep, I'm sorry. <laughs> but characterizing Calvin as being a less problematic version of, say, Alan Quartermain, who might mm. be one of their contemporary counterparts, thinking about adventurer types that would be novelized about in popular literature and stuff like that. Yeah, Calvin really does come across as being fairly likable mm-hmm. uh, for all the reasons that we have gotten into, even though we don't do a complete deep dive of his character because he is just one more step along the way of interesting people that help us learn more about the world and everything like that without the story necessarily being about them. Yes, I think that's actually good, because if we made more of Calvin Wilson, I think you would run the risk of kind of, like, even though it takes great cares to be, like, he's very much that sort of explorer, but with all the colonialism bullshit stripped out of it, you don't want to sort of dedicate too much time, because it's not necessarily about him, it's about other people, and even he is like, Yes, no, I'm going to go out and do this. I think he enjoys the adventure, but like he stops just short of demanding that it be about him. He's almost like acutely aware that his actions speak for themselves, and it's just sort of like, yes, no, it's, it's rather spiffing, isn't it? Now, let's carry on. 
Yes, exactly. I know that this this novel is not about me. So now let me write myself out of the story by literally going, I have to exactly. go. My planet needs me. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, that's totally it. <laughs> uh, Wilson is not the poochie of this series. He is a gentleman, I will have you know. Yeah, uh, but on but on top of all of that, I just have to think to myself that for the little bit of time that we see Calvin and his antics are kind of getting on Thomas's nerves, I have to wonder, like, about the fourth-wall-breaking meta-commentary of Thomas being like, why are you chewing all of the scenery here? This is my book. Um, now, please do what you came to do and stop stealing the scene. <laughs> <laughs> but, but isn't that impressive that you get, like, Calvin Wilson, but you also get, like, two other characters introduced mm -hmm. and... And even amongst all of that, Thomas gets to be very likable because he, a lot of this book is about having Thomas's patience tested. Mm, and mm. it's kind of refreshing when it's in a sort of like, this person isn't really a threat to what I'm trying to accomplish. They're just irksome to me. Like, it's that's yeah. fun. It's fun to see that. Yeah. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that, a specific moment of that in a second. But to get on the subject of Jeremy, his introduction here is important because he is going to be significant in another story down the road. But like you say, introducing him here kind of helps us set up a little bit that future story. And the fact that just because Arlington is focused on the politics of it all, eventually both he and us are going to have our wishes fulfilled and we're going mm. to get to go on that adventure, mm. um, which is a bit of a relief because mm. as Alex has already said multiple times, he has apologized for us having to do the deep dive on Arlington because of the level of seriousness of topic that this story keeps bringing us to. There's still fun to be had like this scene, but joy real joy can be a little bit in scarce supply when we're talking about Arlington, unfortunately. Put it this way. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't get something very meaningful out of it. Even if this is not as joyous a series to get through, we are absolutely getting a lot out of it. I already am. And yeah, as difficult as it is, I still approach these episodes with giddy anticipation because Arlington remains a favourite. There are many mm. other favourites, but it does remain a favourite. That brings us to the end of our show today. But the finishing topic brings to mind only one song. To close us out, this is one of the songs that I not only listened to, but sang constantly as a child. I don't remember if I tried learning the chords so that I could sing it while playing guitar, but it seems like one of the songs I would definitely wanted to have learned. I loved almost every song on this man's greatest hits album, and my fascination with this song once more brings to mind an odd synchronicity, as the woman in my life lives not far from the Rocky Mountain National Park. When I think of the things Calvin Wilson gets to see, or the things Jeremy Pines wants to see, 
this song feels like it invokes that wonder. Until next time, this is John Denver with Rocky Mountain High. He was born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away on the road hanging by a song But the string's already broken And he doesn't really care It keeps changing fast And it don't last too long Say that he got crazy once and he tried to touch the sun And he lost a friend who kept the memory Now he walks in quiet solitude, the forests and the streams Seeking grace in every step he takes His side has turned inside himself to try and understand the serenity of a clear blue mountain lake in the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky Talk to God and listen to the casual reply Rocky Mountain High The simple thing cannot comprehend Why they try to tear the mountains down To bring in a couple more More people, more scars upon the land In the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain fire in the sky Friends around the campfire
Rocky Mountain. 